0: Good morning. If you grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Second uh, Kings, chapter seventeen. And uh, this is your first time at Four Oaks, or if you haven't been here in a little bit. We're we're going through a series called "The People of God." I'm looking at the people of God, and really, what we're doing is we're doing a survey of Israel's story through the Old Testament. And the goal is that we would read it and realize that Israel's story is our story. This is not just a collection of stories from long ago in a different culture, a different time, unrelated to our lives, but this is actually our lineage and our heritage as God's people through the ages. And so we've been looking, uh, tracing Israel's rise as a family under Abraham, and then we see That family become a nation under Moses, and then that nation finds a home under Joshua in the promised land, and that nation in a promised land becomes a kingdom under Samuel and David and Saul. And then we see that that nation actually splits in two after the reign of Solomon. There's a civil war, and Israel splits into the northern kingdom. Called Israel or Samaria. So if you see Samaria, that's referring to the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where Jerusalem is located. So there's Samaria, Israel, Judah in the south. And last week we heard about the story of Elijah, who's a prophet in northern Israel. And he's preaching and he's trying to get the northern kingdom to turn back to God after years of idolatry. And this week we're going to see that his Ministry did not accomplish what he had hoped. This is the fall of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel will fall and be taken into exile by Assyria. And this marks the end of half of God's people. And the question is is there hope after exile? Is there hope when God's people have totally blown it? Read along with me. This is 2 Kings. Chapter 17, we're going to read in verses 6 through 23. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred... "...because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right." They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim in every high hill and on every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God." They despised his commandments and statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, and they used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. It can be a dangerous thing to be a healthy church can be a dangerous thing to be a healthy church. might sound strange to you, but over the years, I've heard many people express gratitude to Four Oaks for for the teaching, for the community, for the discipleship, for the love that has been shown. And I hear stories, people talking about the church they grew up in, and all the horror stories that can come from that. Um, Or you look out in the news, and you see leaders falling and churches either falling into false teaching or implosions in leadership, all kinds of sad stories. And how nice it is to come to a church where that doesn't seem to be happening. That's not the case here. And we should be grateful for that. That's a gift of God's grace. And I'm grateful when people... Are encouraging in that way, but I'm also very cautious. And I think we should actually be very cautious. Because cynicism about the church comes when a place or people we thought were untouchable, too big to fail, fail us. That's where the cynicism comes from. And at one point, The church was it. They were the ones who got it right. Unlike the world, they were going to avoid all the pitfalls of every other terrible story you heard. That's actually a very dangerous place to be because it's when things go well, when you feel like we're doing it well and this is finally a place where we get it right and all these things, that can actually create a pride that will sow the seeds of a church's Destruction. It can make us not trust in the Lord, not be humble, not be sober-minded, not be cautious that we're sinners. That no one is above the corruption of sin. And we need to be very sober-minded about this. This is the problem that faces Judah. So uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, they're sort of always... A couple steps behind on the downward spiral track. Israel is always ahead of them. They're the ones who are going to idolatry. They're the ones who are turning away from the Lord. And Judah is looking at them and going, What's your deal, guys? And then when they get exiled in this chapter, Judah views themselves as the good guys. They're the wayward ones. We're the good guys. And instead of taking the story of their northern sister as a warning sign for them, it becomes a point of pride and apathy, that's a very dangerous place to be. They should have looked at that and thought to themselves, that could be us if we're not careful. That could be us. If you have an infection in your body and your arm, and you have to have your arm amputated, that's not a reason to celebrate how awesome your other arm is. It's a warning to go, that could have spread to us. That could have spread to us. We need to be very careful. We must not think higher of ourselves than we ought to. And warnings are best heeded before we're in the hospital, right? Warnings are best heeded before we enter into sin and pride and destruction. And God in His love gives us those warnings. He gives the warnings through the prophets to Old Testament Israel. And if Israel's story is our story, these warnings are for us too. Israel's warnings are our warnings. And God loves us. He warns us. He calls us out through His Word so that we would continue to abide in Him, to trust in Him, to remain close to Him. So there's a couple warnings I want to look at in this passage. There's three warnings, each one coming from the story of Israel being exiled. The first one is, warning to not desire the world. That's in verses 6 through 12. We must not desire the world. The first thing the author of Kings wants us to know is that the reason that Israel, the northern kingdom, is going into exile is not because Assyria is so powerful and God is too weak. It's not because God had an oversight in his plan. He didn't think they were going to attack, and they did, and now he's scrambling to figure it out. The point of kings is to say the exile was intended by God. The exile was intended by God. God is behind this judgment. And there's a little bit of a play on words. King Hosea, his name actually means savior or salvation. It's actually related to Joshua. Joshua. So Hoshea, the the one who's to bring salvation, ends up leading his nation into destruction. A little bit of historical background. The northern kingdom was a vassal state of Assyria, meaning they had a little bit of independence. They could have their own little king, but they had to pay a tribute every year to Assyria. And so one day King Hoshea goes, I'm I'm done with this. And he calls up Israel, or he calls up Egypt, and he says to Egypt, Can you help me rebel against Assyria? I'm going to stop paying the tax. And we're going to win our independence. And that plan fails miserably. Because for them to trust in Egypt is to essentially trust in Egypt's gods. The very people that God delivered Israel from. And God thwarts their plans. Assyria comes in, destroys Samaria, which is the capital of northern Israel, and brings them into exile as a judgment. But Israel's idolatry began long before Hosea took the throne. One of the main themes of the Old Testament is the theme of the land. The land is always through the Old Testament. The land, the land, the land. Why? Because God freed Israel from slavery, gave them a land that was meant to be a sanctuary in a world of darkness. It was a land of prosperity and of peace. It was a land of holiness. And in response to God's grace, Israel has desecrated this land of holiness with Asherim, these pagan temples, taken God's holy land and turned it toward paganism and idolatry. And they're adopting the customs of the nations. They're looking around. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, and instead they become like the nations. And there's this irony. God's like, these are the people I cleared out for you to have room, and now you want to be like them. This makes no sense. And it's almost as though God says, if you want to be like them, have it your way. Go into their lands. I will kick you out of this land and you can have all of the nations that you want. He exiles him giving them over to their sins. But this idolatry happens in slow motion over generations. And one of the ways that it happens is through syncretism, which is a fancy word, when you mix the true worship of God with the false worship of pagans. That's when you make a hybrid of Christianity with some other religion or ideology. Syncretism keeps the temple nice and tidy. Everybody in Samaria loved God. They loved reading their Bible. They loved Scripture. And they loved their temple, nice and clean, right next to their pagan altars. They were religious, God-fearing people, but they also loved these other gods. That's the danger of Syncretism. There's two ways to destroy a garden. Imagine you have a beautiful garden, all these flowers. There's two ways to destroy it. You can, one, you can light it on fire, or you can plant weeds that will grow alongside them until they eventually overtake. Syncretism is growing weeds next to true religion, contaminating it until it eventually overwhelms it and overcomes it. God has given Israel a garden, and they have planted the weeds of paganism, by following the customs of the nations, by being like them, instead of showing them the way of the Lord. But when you read through the Old Testament, sometimes it's tempting to think God is just cranky all the time. He's just got his finger on the exile button just waiting. You know? But you forget that when you flip through the pages, you're flipping through centuries. Israel has been prospering for 700 years before they're taken in exile. Israel's been messing up since the book of Judges. God saves them, they get worse. He saves them again, they get even worse. He saves them again, they get even worse. It's a downward spiral. And God, over and over again, is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, delivering them from their enemies, giving them offspring and provision and love. So a careful reading of the Old Testament reveals a God that is so patient that it almost seems like he's negligent. And the question is not, why did God send Israel in exile? It's like, why did he wait so long? Why did he wait so long? And his patience is the patience of, and this is often what, like Ezekiel, when when he paints a picture of God's relation to Israel, he says, it's like a faithful husband whose wife keeps going after other men consistent adultery over and over again, and he remains faithful to her. But there will come a point when he says, if you want your other lovers, go have them. Go have them. God's warnings are his love. His warnings are not an excuse for apathy, but a a call back to the one who is our deliverer and our liberator, the one who brings us out of Egypt. Now, we're not in danger of setting up pagan temples next to churches. At least our churches not hopefully other churches aren't. But we are in danger of what Foley Beach, who is the uh, Anglican archbishop, he says, he calls this neo-paganism. We're in danger of neo-paganism. And this is when the church adopts an understanding of God, gender, and sexuality that is more in common with paganism than historic Christianity. And listen to what he says. He says, But progressives have been clever in all of this. They have changed the theological content of belief while maintaining the facade of orthodoxy. They still speak of Jesus, the gospel, and the spirit, but the meanings of all these words have changed drastically. And as the apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, they preach another Jesus, a different spirit, different gospel. The problem with syncretism is in its subtlety. They speak of Jesus, the gospel, and the spirit. All the right words, but they mean completely different things. You know, Mormons say that Jesus loves you. But but what they mean by Jesus is completely different than what we mean. this is why language and precision and theology and creeds and confessions are so critical. Our whole faith is built on the fact that words mean something, and they don't mean other things. Jesus is this, not that. The gospel means this, not that. Marriage is this, not that. So, what the archbishop is saying Is that to deny the historic teaching of the church, to deny the Word of God, is not just to see a different interpretation of things. It is to preach an entirely different gospel. It is to preach an entirely different religion. But it happens under the mask of very spiritual words. This is not to say that we can't learn from the world or that the philosophers who aren't Christians don't have something to teach us or that we can't learn something from science and the world and all these things. It's not saying that, but it is saying that idolatry always begins with good intentions. Tolerance, love, empathy, these are Christian things that we should have. But without clear definitions and without attention to the Word of God and attention to the truth and what things mean, It will end in destruction. We must not desire the world. And it can happen very subtly. Now, how do we guard against desiring the world? Well, God gives us instruction. It's the second warning. We must not desire the world, but we also must not despise the Word. Do not despise the Word of God. Despise might sound like a strong word to use. And I used it, not just so that I could have another D word to complete the alliteration, although I did do that, but also because it's in the actual passage. It's in the passage, verse 14 to 15. Israel, instead of listening to the warnings of God, it says that they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God, and they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. Israel refuses the law and the prophets. Think about Elijah, right? His whole ministry. This is a world-class preacher. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He's calling down fire from heaven. And despite all of that, Israel is hard-hearted. Israel is hard-hearted. They refuse the Word of God. It reveals the stubbornness of their hearts. It reveals the way of life learned from their forefathers. You gotta, they, They're growing up. There are pagan temples everywhere in Israel. Every king in their history has turned towards idolatry. This is, this is the air they breathe. But in rejecting the Word, they are rejecting God Himself. They are despising it. There's a moral element to it. It's not just ignoring it, but there's a hostility towards it. The heart of their rebellion is unbelief. What is at the core? Why do they reject the Word? Because they don't believe God. They don't trust Him. They don't think He really is the liberating God of the exile who loves them, who provides for them. God speaks to us to direct us away from the corruption of sin, but we don't believe Him. And this is a lie as old as the garden. What did Satan tell Eve? God doesn't want you from the tree because He's stingy. Because if you eat from it, you'll be like him. He's holding something back from you. And what should Eve have said? We're already like God. We're made in his image. He gives us every other tree to eat from. He's blessed us with marriage. He's blessed us with a, a world of prosperity, everything we could want. He walks with us daily in the garden. What more could we ask for? But that little seed of discontent eats away at her. And the implication is sinister. What is Satan saying? God's commands are against our joy and our good that's how it starts nobody just goes up and says why don't you just sin no It says I don't think God actually cares about you or is wise or knows what's right and you need to take things into your own hands and when we turn from God's words you turn away from something you turn toward something that's just inevitably what happens and you turn away from God's words you will turn toward other gods you will fear other gods what is the appeal of idolatry Why are people carving up little figurines and putting them in their houses? Because it gives a sense of control. If you can carve an idol and hold your God in your hands, you can make it do your bidding. You can barter with it. It is something that you can grab onto, hold onto, and manipulate. And the ancient Near East, the gods of the pagans bartered with their worshippers. So you can see One of the gods that are mentioned that Israel turned turned towards was Baal. Baal was a rain god. And what he would do is he would bless the land with rain, and rain would bring a yield of grain, which would provide for people and give them food and provision. And so you would offer sacrifices and give to this god so that he would give you prosperity in return. Why do they sell themselves, which is, I think, a reference to temple prostitution. Why do they give themselves up to be prostitutes in a temple? Well, because if there was no fertility in your land, if there were no babies being born, the idea was that it's because the gods have stopped procreating themselves. And you go to the temple and you offer up your own body as a prostitute to kind of nudge the gods that they need to start procreating. And once they do that, they'll bless the land with fertility. So you give up your body for the favor of God. And then they took their their sons and daughters and throw them into a fire, sacrificed them for the favor of the gods, for peace and prosperity and a vision of a good life, which we still do today. Which we still do today. That's not an exaggeration. These are all the corruptions that... Fall into the human heart when idols enslave us. You might ask, well, why are they doing this? Because because God is the one who gives them fertility. He opens up their wombs, and He's the one who provides the grain and the harvest, and He's the one who gives them peace and gives them the vision of the good life freely as a gift of His grace. God asks for sacrifices. You might go, well, he's no different from the other gods. Well, he is, because in Hebrews it says those sacrifices actually don't do anything. They don't forgive sin. They're just signposts to the sacrifice that God himself provides in Jesus Christ. In other words, paganism says, I demand you provide your body, your child, your money. I demand you provide, then I bless. But the God of the Old Testament The God of Israel, the God who is our God, says, I demand, I provide, I bless. I demand, I provide, I bless. This is why when God calls us to obey, he's not calling us to obey to earn his favor, but to realize it, to experience it, to walk in it. When does God give the Ten Commandments? He saves Israel out of slavery. He hears their cries and has compassion and remembers his promises, and he pulls them out. Before they've done anything, he pulls them out, makes them free, and then gives them the law and says, This is how you live like a free person. The law illuminates the path on the way of life. This is a new way of living, a way of freedom, a new way of viewing yourself and your nation. You don't love your spouse in order to become married. You're not faithful to your spouse to become married. You are faithful and you love them so that you can press deeper into the blessing of marriage. That is how you realize the gift of marriage. It is already yours, and as you walk in it with faithfulness and love, the joy of that blessing becomes tangible. And in the same way, when we obey God, that is how we walk in the new life He has already won for us. He has redeemed us. Now here, this is how you walk like redeemed people. He is so gracious. He gives us directions and a guide on the path to what is truly freedom. And to refuse God's words is, again, to refuse God's and to enslave ourselves to other gods. And then there's this detail that's actually very common, a very common observation in the prophets. In verse 15 of chapter 17, This passage, it says that they went after false idols and became false. And Isaiah will talk about how those who worship idols become like them. There's a corruption of our character. Corrupt practices come out of corrupt hearts. We become like what we worship. Idols don't speak. They're deaf, dumb, blind, and mute. And when we worship them, we become deaf, dumb, blind, and mute. Which is why Jesus in his parables always says what? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. What's he saying? Those who will turn to the true God will see and hear and be alive. But those who worship idols will be deadened spiritually in their minds and their hearts. And corrupt hearts are lured in by the evil forces of the world. This is something that the Bible speaks a lot about that we often forget. That there are angels, there are demons, there are evil uh, forces and spirits who utilize false religion to enslave people. This is not some weird mystical stuff. What does Paul say in Ephesians? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present age. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, people are lured away by deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So there's a supernatural realm. And when we do battle, we do it with what? The Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Spirit. So when we hear the Word preached, when we read the Word, when we share it with our kids, when we sing the Word and we take the Lord's Supper and we hear the promise of the Word and when we encourage each other with the Word, we're not just giving... Life maintenance advice, helping people with their marriages, helping people not be as anxious, those are important things, but that's not the main thing. What are you doing? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? You are dismantling strongholds and you are waging spiritual war against the forces of darkness. The Word of God cuts through the darkness and reveals the truth and and liberates those who are captives to sin, death, and those cosmic forces of darkness. And if you reject the Word, you cut yourself off from the very power that God uses by His Spirit to liberate us. Are there verses in the Bible you wish you could erase? When no one's looking, you could take your white out and just... Are there verses that you roll your eyes at? I feel that way. And it's precisely at those points that I must submit. It's precisely at those points when the Word of God has jagged edges that I must submit and trust, Lord, you are wise and you have given this to me that I might not be enslaved to the deceit of the world and of these cosmic forces. You're always going to believe someone's words. You're always going to believe someone's words. Make them God's. So we must not desire the world. We must not despise the word, but finally we must not despair in our sin. We must not despair in our sin. If you just read First and Second Kings and you think this is just about moral reformation, you're wrong. This is not a call for moral reformation to get your act together. It is a call for resurrection. Solomon's kingdom is split into two. Their lineage is cut off from the house of David. And it says in verse 19 that Judah, who's watching this happen, instead of taking the warning, they further go into sin. They also walk contrary to the word of God. Judah is just northern Israel falling in slow motion. That's all it is. They're the good guys. And in a few centuries, Babylon is going to do what Assyria did to the northern kingdom. Babylon's going to come in, destroy Jerusalem's walls destroy the temple and pull them out into exile. That's what the book of Daniel's about. And 1st and 2nd Kings was most likely written in the exile. This is a guy from Judah sitting in exile in Babylon looking back at the history of Israel and going what went wrong? What went wrong? He's going through and saying where did we fail to listen that we ended up in this situation? All the marks of Israel's national identity, the temple, the king, the sacrifices, the very city of Jerusalem, gone. Anything you would ever hold on to and say, we're going to be okay, gone. Why? So that they would hope in God. Peter Lighthart, in his commentary on First and Second Kings says this, the message of the prophets is not... Israel has sinned, therefore Israel needs to get its act together or it will die. The message is, Israel has sinned, therefore Israel must die. And its only hope is to entrust itself to a God who will give it new life on the far side of death. They need to die that they might be raised. They need to trust, not in themselves and their own power, but in the God who raises the dead. They need to believe God. And the rest of chapter 17 goes into detail about how once Assyria takes over northern Israel, Israel, they begin to intermarry with Assyrians and they form a sort of hybrid religion and they form a mixed people called the Sumerians. And then centuries later, Jesus, a man of Judah, walks up to a Sumerian woman at a well. Why? Robert Alter, he's a New Testament commentator, he says that whenever you read about wells in the Bible, you should hear wedding bells. Jacob met Rachel at a well, his wife. Isaac met Rebekah at a well. Moses met Zipporah, his wife, at a well. And now here, Jesus of Judah meets this Sumerian woman at a well. But she's not like Rachel and Zipporah and Rebecca. She's actually been married a couple times. She's had five former husbands, and the one she's currently with is not her husband. In other words, she's had six grooms until she meets Jesus, who will be her seventh, which is the number seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. And Jesus offers her water, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and says that this water wells up to eternal life, that He will be the husband that wipes away the shame of her past. And their covenant will be forever. She's unnamed, which means she represents something greater. She is Israel, the woman with many lovers, whom God has come to redeem as His bride. And He tells this woman, my father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you want to be part of that? This Sumerian woman. After his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive the Holy Spirit, the living water, and that water will empower these converted Jews to be, Acts 1 7 through 8, witnesses in Jerusalem. In all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Exile came from the nations. From the nations to Samaria, to Judea, finally to Jerusalem. And the gospel comes from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to all the pagan nations. It is the great reversal that God purposes in Jesus Christ. Exile in the sovereign, gracious plan of God is not the end of Israel. It's not the end of God's people. It's the rebirth. It's the resurrection. And isn't that what the gospel is? Not from kind of bad to a little better, but from dead to alive. And we, the church, are God's resurrected Israel in Christ. This is why the Apostle Peter calls the church... In 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what it means to be, to be the people of God. In our darkness, God brings forth light. We are living, breathing evidence that Israel lives This is not Christians, we all like Christianity and we gather here to talk about it. This is like our own little club that we figure out. No, this is the body of Christ, the people of God that He has been building from the Old Testament to the New Testament to now, not only bringing back together Judah and Samaria, but bringing in the nations of the world into this resurrected Israel. That's what the church is God has not abandoned his people he has not abandoned us why not because we're perfect we're good we have we have it figured out we're, we've got the best programs and the preaching and all whatever no why is God with us why are we going to be okay because we have Jesus that's it that's it nothing insightful nothing wh- we get we get in trouble when we try to be too insightful and clever right We have Jesus. We're going to be okay. He always leads us through death into resurrection. When everything is lost, when God's people despair, God is at work. And He is at work today in us, but we have to trust Him. How do we resist the world? How do we believe the Word? How do we not lose hope in our sin? We stay close to Christ. We stay close to Christ. That's what this whole thing is about. Jesus Christ does not need Four Oaks Midtown, but Four Oaks Midtown desperately needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, every moment. The moment you were saved when He brought you out of darkness to life to this moment, it's the same dependence. And that humility should well up into joy. Let's not lose our first love. Let us be sober-minded and humble, but also hopeful and always rejoicing, always abounding. Enjoy. We are the culmination of God's plan and He is working in us. That is our story. And that's what we have to stick to. Psalm 50 verses 14 to 15. I'll end with this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in a day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Are you in a day of trouble? Call upon the Lord. He will deliver you. And when he does, we come back here and we glorify him. Let's pray together.